Welcome to Hackstack, the show where philosophy is the new cool and all the rage. And now, here's a philosopher that holds no advanced degrees in philosophy whatsoever. Cos. <laughs> Hello. Oh, I love that introduction. And yes, it's true. I don't have any advanced degrees in philosophy, but I did stay at a Holiday Inn Express last night, so you can trust me. I want to go over a quick side dish refresher before we jump into the main entree of Hackstack Episode 5. So why do I think philosophy is so important? And more importantly, why should you think it's important? Well, first off, the whole world, whether you know it or not, respects philosophy. One of the highest educational rankings that one can achieve is that of a Ph.D. Do you know what Ph.D. stands for? Boy, he got his Ph.D. degree. <laughs> no Puff Daddy or P. Diddy or Sean Combs or whatever name you're going by these days. Uh, it's not player hating degree. Actually, I think that was Mace. But anyway, no, it's not player hating degree. Ph.D. stands for Doctor of Philosophy. And actually, philosophy is said to be the mother of all disciplines. You can't even do other disciplines without it. This is simply because philosophies ask the question of why. But without getting too deep into that, I want to refer to our prior episode on how we define philosophy. That being the most basic belief, concepts, and attitudes of an individual. So with that being said, we're going to start off this episode uh, by taking a mental vitamin. You guys know I'm big on self-talk and uh, self-doubt and how destructive that can be. So we are going to address that really quickly. And we're going to do that by playing a clip from uh, Dave Ramsey. He's actually a financial guru, uh, but this particular clip has nothing to do with finances. It really has to do with lies and the lies we tell ourselves. So there's two major categories of lies, in my opinion. Uh, the first category is lies that other people tell you, and the bigger, more damaging category is lies that we tell ourselves. Uh, both are equally damaging, but we need to uh, be very proactive in trying to prevent these lies from taking root in our mind and affecting our actions. So again, this is just a little mental vitamin to start the show off, so hopefully you enjoy this clip. Let's roll it. It occurs to me that sometimes in our personal lives, our relationships, our spiritual walk, our physical condition, sometimes in our professional lives, our ideas, our creativity, our view of the marketplace, our, the way we look at a business model, that our past or something that was taught to us that was toxic and wrong shapes our mind. Our past or something that was awesome and positive also shapes our mind. My parents are, were, were serial entrepreneurs. A lot of downsides to that. We were either buying Cadillacs or having them towed. And so, um, you know, it was all come or go, you know. And, and so uh, one thing they told us every day, and I, I don't know why it stuck with me, but they told us every day that you can do and be anything if you'll just do it. If you'll put out the effort, if you'll pay the price to win, you can do anything. Horatio Alger is not dead. In America today, you can get up, leave the cave, kill something, and drag it home, and we can do anything. We specialize around here in basically taking on the impossible in industries that say you can't do something and we go and do it. 
or taking something that they didn't even know existed and it didn't exist and we form it with God's help and cause an entire industry to evolve. And um, we, we've done that in multiple things around here. And so we've not been stuck. But sometimes we get stuck. And um, the, way you, the way you train a circus elephant, if you understand that for the rest of your life, you can challenge yourself when you get stuck. Because what they do is when a baby elephant is brought into the circus, it's still wild and untrained, of course, and they drive a big metal iron stake deep into the dirt. And they put a big chain on that. And they put that big chain around that baby elephant's ankle. And that little elephant has an elephant hissy fit. And he's trying to get away, and he's pulling, and he's tugging, and he's jerking, and he's pulling, and he's jerking, and he's doing everything he can to get loose. And he can't get loose, and so finally he gives up. Fast forward 20 years later, we can visit that baby elephant as an adult elephant. And you know how they restrain adult elephants? They drive a small stake in the ground, put a tiny little rope on the stake, and tie it around his ankle tight enough that he can feel the pressure on his ankle. And that massive, unbelievably powerful elephant, who at any moment could just walk away, could just shake his leg a little bit and pull that little stake out without any trouble at all, chooses to not move. Because inside of his brain, there's a baby elephant that couldn't get away. And because of his past, because of the way he was taught, wrong, he now believes that he can't get away. The only thing holding him there is his belief in mythology. He believes a lie. And that's the only thing holding him there. So it's important to know how circus elephants are trained. Because sometimes the only thing holding me back is I believe a lie. So remember that, folks. Don't believe those lies. They'll kill you. Okay, back to our regularly scheduled programming of Episode 5. I want to talk again about the miracle morning routine and how important it is. Now, I know this is going to sound incredibly simple, but sometimes we need to hear the simple things well, simply put. So here it goes. You can't accomplish your goals if you can't get out of bed. Shocking, I know. But I want you to think of getting out of bed as the very first domino in a long string of dominoes. But it's not a normal-sized domino. It's a very, very tiny domino. And although it's small, it's very, very critical. To help illustrate how small things lead to massive results, I want to play this clip from the book The One Thing by Gary Keller. Now, Gary Keller is co-founder of Keller Williams Real Estate which is an international real estate franchise with over 700 offices worldwide. It is the largest real estate franchise by agent count in North America. So this guy knows what he's talking about when, when we talk about massive results. So check this clip out. In Leeuwarden, the Netherlands, on Domino Day, November 13, 2009, Weiger's Domino Productions coordinated the world record domino fall by lining up more than 4,491,863 dominoes in a dazzling display. 
In this instance, a single domino set in motion a domino fall that cumulatively unleashed more than 94,000 joules of energy, which is as much energy as it takes for an average-sized male to do 545 push-ups. Each standing domino represents a small amount of potential energy. The more you line up, the more potential energy you've accumulated. Line up enough, and with a simple flick, you can start a chain reaction of surprising power. And Weiger's domino productions proved it. When one thing, the right thing, is set in motion, it can topple many things. And that's not all. In 1983, Lauren Whitehead wrote in the American Journal of Physics that he discovered domino falls could not only topple many things, they could also topple bigger things. He described how a single domino is capable of bringing down another domino that is actually 50% larger. Do you see the implication? Not only can one knock over others, but also others that are successively larger. In 2001, a physicist from San Francisco's Exploratorium reproduced Whitehead's experiment by creating eight dominoes out of plywood each of which was 50% larger than the one before. The first was a mere two inches, the last almost three feet tall. The resulting domino fall began with a gentle tick and quickly ended with a loud slam. Imagine what would happen if this kept going. If a regular domino fall is a linear progression, whiteheads would be described as a geometric progression. The result could defy the imagination. The tenth domino would be almost as tall as NFL quarterback Peyton Manning. By the eighteenth, you're looking at a domino that would rival the Leaning Tower of Pisa. The twenty-third domino would tower over the Eiffel Tower. And the thirty-first domino would loom over Mount Everest by almost three thousand feet. Number fifty-seven would practically bridge the distance between the Earth and the Moon. So that's pretty cool that a small domino can topple something one and a half times larger than itself. To further emphasize this, I want you to watch a YouTube video that I'll keep in the show notes. And I apologize for the past show. My uh, show notes have been a little thin. I think I've got it figured out now. So if you touch the Hackstack logo on your smartphone, it should turn over and my show notes should be right there. And you should see a link for a YouTube video. Uh, if the link's not working or you don't see it, you can just search for yourself. It's called Domino Chain Reaction Short Version. Short version because it's only like one minute long. You may want to stop the podcast now and watch the video as I think the visual will help you understand my point a little bit better. Again, you'll notice how incredibly small that first domino is. The guy has to use a pair of tweezers to hold and set that domino. Also notice how big that last domino is. Think of these dominoes as your daily accomplishments. But guess what? You absolutely have to get the waking up and getting out of bed correct. You just have to nail that one thing. Getting out of bed is the equivalent to that first tweezer-sized domino, and it's the key to everything. It's impossible to knock over those huge dominoes if you don't get out of bed. So since getting out of bed is so critical, I'm going to go over a few of my favorite wake-up hacks to help you get out of bed. And they're all really just basically real simple twists on the traditional alarm clock. The thing that I personally find myself using the most is a free app on your iPhone or smartphone. It's called Sleep Time. 
by Azumio, A-Z-U-M-I-O. And these, these, all these things I'm about to mention will be on the show notes. Again, it's called Sleep Time, and here's what's uh, unique about this alarm app. It's based on the circadian rhythm, which is basically the 24-hour uh, sleep rhythm or internal clock that we all have. Uh, and way back when, before the Industrial Revolution and, and lights and all that good stuff, we pretty much, when the sun went up, we'd wake up, and when the sun would go down, we would go to bed. But modern technology and lights and all that stuff sort of messes with that uh, circadian rhythm. But long story short, what you need to know about this particular app that's unique is it can measure how deep or how light you're sleeping. So you set the, the app, you turn your phone upside down, and you put the phone on the upper part of your bed, sort of by your pillow. Uh, you'd think you'd knock it off, but I have only knocked it off one time in, say, the last six months. Uh, but in general, it just sits right there, and the accelerometer in the phone measures your movement, and the phone can tell how deep or how light you're sleeping. Now, in and of itself, that's really all not that special, but here's what's pretty cool about this particular alarm clock. Uh, it has a window of time where it can wake you up at your lightest sleep. So, for example, if you set your alarm clock for 6 a.m., Anytime between 5.30 a.m. and 6 a.m., it will wake you up when you are sleeping the lightest. So it knows when you're sort of moving around and wrestling around, and it will wake you up at that moment. And I tell you what, it's, it's pretty amazing. You will wake up maybe 15, 20 minutes normal, earlier than normal, and you'll feel more refreshed because you haven't been woken up in deep sleep. So think about a time where you your alarm went off and you were in the middle of a deep sleep and you felt like you got hit by a truck. Really not the best feeling. However, this app wakes you up gently because it knows that you're already moving around and that's when it wakes you up. So it's a really unique app in the fact that it knows your movements uh, not only that, but it wakes you up according to those movements. Now, it takes a little bit of getting used to. You may want to back that up with the, a normal alarm clock uh, just in case. But it's it's really cool because even if you wake up in the middle of the night, you can kind of pick up your phone. It will automatically tell you how many hours left you have till your alarm goes off. So it's a, it's a really unique app. Again, it's called Sleep Time, and all of these will be in the show notes. A few other cool alarm clocks are... Uh, there's one called the Peaceful Progression Aromatherapy and Nature Sound Wake-Up Alarm Clock. It's really, really cool. It's a little pricey, but given the fact that it will help you knock over that first small domino, which could lead to huge results, I'm definitely a big fan of investing in the equipment that helps you accomplish your goals. Uh, it could be worth it. It's a really unique alarm clock. It, it starts off with a really dim light that slowly increases to a brighter light, which should, in most cases, naturally wake you up. But just in case it doesn't, uh, it'll kick in a few nat natural sounds like birds chirping near the end. And just for good measure, I think it has eight uh, scents that you can add to the alarm clock that will also kick in your olfactory nerves and your senses and uh, will help wake you up. I, I forget all the scents that are available, but I know coffee is one of them. And usually that gets people uh, raring and going and out of bed. Now, an, another real simple, cost-effective way to, to get out of bed is to set your alarm and have it all the way across the room. So you actually have to get up and push 
the off button. And once you're out of bed and you're moving, once you get through that first little bit of pain, it's pretty easy to stay up. Uh, I talked to a buddy of mine. He actually keeps his alarm clock in his bathroom. So he has to go all the way to his bathroom to turn off the alarm clock. And by that time, he's moving. Uh, he can take a drink of water. He can brush his teeth. And then he can do a whole host of other things that uh, that will help wake him up. And at first, I was like, well, that's that's a great idea. But, you know, that's a little crazy because I don't want to wake my wife up. And he goes, yeah, that's the point. That's extra motivation because if you wake your wife up when she doesn't want to give up, that's not going to be a pleasant circumstance for you. So I was like, yeah, no, actually, that's a pretty good idea. Every little bit of motivation helps. So anyway, check out some of these different alarm clocks. Um, There's a whole host of them. You've got light alarm clocks. You've got light plus smell alarm clocks. I think there's actually even a clock that smells like bacon when it goes off. In any event, you do whatever you need to do. You keep messing around until you find the right system uh, to get you out of bed consistently. So now we are going to take this a step further. Right here and right now, we're going to make getting up early in the morning a habit. Not only are we going to talk about this one habit, we're going to talk about how to form a rock-solid foundation for all habits. So quick question for you. How many days do you think it takes to form a habit? Think about that for a moment, and we'll talk about that later. For now, we are going to explore the topic of habit formation with just a little humor. I know this may seem like it's coming out of left field, and true, this episode may zig and zag a little bit, but if you stick with me, I think you'll like the results. But for now, we are going to set the mood with the comic stylings of Jerry Seinfeld. This one is actually for my wife. She is a big fan of Seinfeld, and in particular, a fan of these particular clips that I am about to play. So, here you go. I was in London uh, about a month ago. The World Cup was going on. I enjoy any sporting event where nations get involved. I find that the most exciting. The Olympics is really my favorite uh, sporting event, although I, I think I have a problem with that silver medal. I think if I was an Olympic athlete, I would rather come in last than win the silver, if you think about it. You know, you win the gold, you feel good. You win the bronze, you think, well, at least I got something. But you win that silver, that's like, congratulations, you almost won. (laughs) Of all the losers, you came in first of that group. (laughs) You're the number one loser. (laughs) No one lost ahead of you. (laughs) And they don't lose by much, you know, these short races, three hundredths of a second, two hundredths of a second. I don't know how they live with that the rest of their lives, because you got to tell the story. Everyone wants to hear the story. Wow, congratulations, silver medal. Did you trip? Did you not hear the gun go off? Tell us what happened. <laughs> it's a hundredth of a second. You know, people say, what was the difference in the, in the margin there? What was it? Well, it was like from now. It was like from now, now to now. Now, now to now. To now. Now. now to now. Now. Now now. 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 That was it. That was it. I trained, I worked out, I exercised my entire life. I never had a date, I never had a drink, I never had a beer, I was doing push-ups since I was a fetus. I flew halfway around the world, everybody I knew in my whole life was there, the guy shut off the gun, and oh. And they always had that photo finish, you know the photo finish was always silver, gold. This is the whole race. Gold, silver, Bronze, dead last. 
Greatest guy in the world. Never heard of him. <laughs> you know, guy's got to be thinking, if I had a pimple, I would have won. <laughs> so many events at the Olympics don't make sense to me. I don't understand their connection to any reality. Like, uh, like in the Winter Olympics, they have that biathlon. You know that one that combines cross-country skiing with shooting a gun? How many Alpine snipers are into this? But ski, shoot a gun, ski, bang, bang, bang. To me, it's like combining swimming and strangle a guy. Why don't we have that? That makes absolutely as much sense to me. Just put people in the pool at the end of each lane for the swimmers. And that other one the, uh, that I love is the luge. You know the luge where the guy wears the slick suit? This, this is on the bobsled run, but it's not even a sled. It's just Bob. It's just a human being hanging on for their life. This is the whole sport. Just... Ah. Oh, he pointed his toes. Oh, this guy's a tremendous athlete. The luge is the only sport I've ever seen that you could have people competing in it against their will, and it would be exactly the same. You know, if they were just grabbing people off the street, hey, 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 what is this? I don't want to be in the luge. You know, you put the helmet on them, you wouldn't really hear them screaming, just, you're in the luge, buddy. World record. Didn't even want to do it. I want to see that event next year, the involuntary luge. It's that little bit of arrogance in the medical community I think we could all live without. Like when you go to see the doctor, you don't see the actual doctor first. You must wait in the waiting room. There's no chance of not waiting. That's the name of the room. The doctors are all back there. Well, we can't take them now. We've already got this room. And you sit there, you pretend you're reading your little magazine. You're actually looking at the other people. I wonder what he's got. That guy's a goner. Then they call you. You get very excited when they call you because you think now you're going to see the doctor. But you're not. Now you're going into the next smaller waiting room. Now you don't even have your magazine. Now you got your pants around your ankles. You're sitting on that butcher paper they pull out over the table. Sometimes I bring a pickle with me and I put it next to me right there on the table. I don't know. In case the doctor wants to fold the whole thing up for a to-go order. Get your pants off and get in there and I will tell you what I think. Doctors always want your pants off. Take your pants off. Doctor would like to see you with no pants. Just get them off. It's my head. I said take your pants off. But I hate the extra weight, so I start, maybe I'll start screwing around with some of his stuff, you know? Maybe I'll turn that thing up a little bit. Whatever the hell that does. Take all the tongue depressors out, lick them all, put them all back in. Yeah, two can play at this waiting game. 
Just once I'd like to say to the doctor, you know what? I'm not ready for you yet. Why don't you go back in your little office? I'll be in in a minute. And get your pants off. Then we'll see what's what. Why does the doctor need that little office for anyway? You know, his books, little stupid aquarium there. I guess he doesn't want people to see him looking stuff up. What the hell was that? That was kind of gross. That wasn't the tube or the circle. Right, a friend of mine is uh, going in for a nose job next week. Guy. Nose job. You know what the uh, technical term for a nose job is? Well, of course you do. It's New York, everybody. <laughs> Rhinoplasty. Rhino. Now, this guy is aware he has a bit of a problem. He's obviously sensitive about it. That's why he made the appointment. Do we need to compare him to a rhinoceros? When you go for a hair transplant, they don't say, we're going to perform a cue ballectomy on you, Mr. Johnson. We feel the chromdomia has advanced to a level we term skinheadia. Now, these are all medical terms that you don't need to understand. I'll tell you what I like about Chinese people. They're hanging in there with the chopsticks, aren't they? You know they've seen the fork. They're staying with the sticks. I'm impressed by that. I don't know how they missed it. Chinese farmer gets up, works in the shovel, all, works in the field with a shovel all day. Shovel, spoon, come on. There it is. You're not plowing 40 acres with a couple of pool cues. Okay, so why did I play that clip? Well, A, to spice up the show a little bit. I mean, we can't be totally serious all the time. We've got to have a little bit of fun. And B, it's a setup for the most powerful and simple technique I've ever come across when it comes to creating a habit. I simply call it the streak. So again, I'm going to play another clip from the book The One Thing by Gary Keller. Uh, the first part of this clip talks about author Stephen King, and I'm going to keep that in there because it ties a little bit into the Miracle Morning concept. But it's the final part of the clip that talks about Jerry Seinfeld, and that's what we want to focus on. So let's roll the clip. In the book On Writing, Stephen King describes his workflow. He says, My own schedule is pretty clear-cut. Mornings belong to whatever is new, the current composition. Afternoons are for naps and letters. Evenings are for reading, family, Red Sox games on TV, and any revisions that just cannot wait. Basically, mornings are my prime writing time. Four hours a day may scare you more than King's novels, but you can't argue with his results. Stephen King is one of the most successful and prolific writers of our time. Whenever I tell this story, there is always one person who says to me, well, sure, it's easy for Stephen King. He's Stephen King. To that I simply say, I think the question you must ask yourself is this. Does he get to do this because he is Stephen King, or is he Stephen King because he does this? That invariably stops the discussion cold. 
In July 2007, software developer Brad Isaac shared a productivity secret he reportedly got from comedian Jerry Seinfeld. Before Seinfeld was a household name and still regularly toured, Isaac ran into him at an open mic comedy club and asked him for advice on how to be a better comedian. Seinfeld told him the key was to write jokes, which is his one thing, every day. And the way he'd figured out how to make that happen was to hang a huge annual calendar on the wall and then put a big red X across every day he worked on his craft. Seinfeld said, after a few days, you'll have a chain. Just keep at it, and the chain will grow longer every day. You'll like seeing the chain, especially when you get a few weeks under your belt. Your only job is to not break the chain. Don't break the chain. That's it. That's my big secret. Start a streak and keep it rolling and rolling and rolling. Keep knocking over those dominoes over and over again like it's your job, like it's your destiny. I guarantee no one cared when a no-name comedian named Jerry Seinfeld would wake up every day and day in and day out just to write joke after joke after joke. Honing and perfecting his craft, and only then, when he was done, did he put one single big red X on his calendar. Then he got a month full of X's, and then a year full of X's, and then, quote, overnight, unquote, everyone knows who he is. And now today, Seinfeld is one of the most successful comedians of our day. So use a big red X. That formula is very, very slight edge. Keep the streak alive. And the streak I'm talking about in particular is your morning routine. So back to my question, how many days does it take to form a, a habit? What's your answer? Some say 27 days. Others say, well, it's really 62 days. I think those answers are all garbage. And I think you do too. And let me prove it to you. Have you ever done something for 28 days? Whatever, a workout program, eating right, maybe read a book every day or anything like that. Let's say it's an exercise program. So here's the follow-up question. Do you still exercise? Well, guess what? If the answer is no, I'm thinking 27 days is not how long it takes to form a habit. Otherwise, you'd still be doing it. So let's discuss this a little bit. When does a cucumber become a pickle? Well, I don't know, but I for sure know a pickle when I see it. Point being, you won't know how long it takes to form a habit until you are already there. This habit idea is so critical that we are going to shoot way, way long to guarantee success. If experts say it takes 62 days to form a habit, then we are going to double that and take 124 days. If you can mark four months of X's on your calendar, then maybe you'll have a fighting chance. But folks, here's the true test. We are after something big. We want this to become, and here is a word for you, habitual. You've probably heard this term like habitual liar or habitual drinker. And what do you think of when you hear that term? This person is so far gone in this behavior that they don't even realize they're doing it. It's just part of who they are. So most times when you hear the word habitual, it's a bad thing. We are going to own that term and use it to our advantage. So think about this. When you look at your to-do list, is there take a shower or brush your teeth on that list? Do you have to put a reminder in your Outlook calendar or use our Siri hack from episode one to tell yourself to take a shower? No, of course not. That is because showering is habitual for you. You don't even have to think about it. So when your morning routine gets to the point where it's habitual for you, then and only then do you maybe consider stopping 
keeping track of those red X's. If I had to guess, that's at least four months to one year for most of us. Now, that may sound like a long time, but time is going to pass whether you do this or not. And since time is going to pass, you may as well use that time to fortify your foundation of success with a solid morning routine. Now, I feel so strongly about this that I'm going to give you a sneak peek at your homework assignment. And that homework is to go on Amazon or Audible and buy the book The Power of Habit by Charles Duhigg. It's a 10-hour audiobook, but here's a hack for you to get through the book a little quicker. In the lower left-hand corner, there is a place that says Speed 1X. Touch that on your smartphone, and you can increase the narrator's speed up to three times. Now, it may sound a little crazy at first, but trust me, you can train your ears to listen to this stuff quicker. And me personally, I actually retain more knowledge when the narrator is speaking quicker. That's because I feel like I have to concentrate a little bit more. This same feature is also available on your podcast app. If you look in the lower left-hand corner, usually there's something like a speed button or it may look like a, a time clock, but you can click that and you can maybe go up to twice the normal speed. So if you're going at twice the speed, theoretically, you can finish a 10-hour book in five hours. So what I want to do for you right now is play the introduction of this book for you just to give you a little teaser and a little inspiration. It tells the story of a woman whose life was basically a mess in every way, shape, or form, but she completely turned it around by changing one thing. Namely, she quit smoking. And how changing that one thing started a domino effect of positive change. So check this out. She was the scientist's favorite study participant. Lisa Allen, according to her file, was 34 years old, had started smoking and drinking when she was 16, and had struggled with obesity for most of her life. At one point in her mid-twenties, collection agencies were hounding her to recover more than $10,000 in debts. An old resume listed her longest job as lasting less than a year. The woman in front of the researchers today, however, was lean and vibrant with the toned legs of a runner. She looked a decade younger than the photos in her chart, and it seemed likely she could out-exercise anyone in the room. According to the most recent report in her file, Lisa had no outstanding debts, didn't drink, and was in her 39th month at a graphic design firm. How long since your last cigarette? One of the physicians asked, starting down the list of questions Lisa answered every time she came to this laboratory outside Bethesda, Maryland. Almost four years, she said, and I've lost 60 pounds and run a marathon since then. She'd also started a master's degree program and bought a home. It had been an eventful stretch. The scientists in the room included neurologists, psychologists, geneticists, and a sociologist. For the past three years, with funding from the National Institutes of Health, they had poked and prodded Lisa and more than two dozen other former smokers, chronic overeaters, problem drinkers, obsessive shoppers, and people with other destructive habits. All of the participants had one thing in common— they had remade their lives in relatively short periods of time. The researchers wanted to understand how. So they measured subjects' vital signs, installed video cameras inside their homes to watch their daily routines, sequenced portions of their DNA, 
And with technologies that allowed them to peer inside people's skulls in real time, watched as blood and electrical impulses flowed through their brains while they were exposed to temptations such as cigarette smoke and lavish meals. The researchers' goal was to figure out how habits work on a neurological level and what it took to make them change. I know you've told this story a dozen times, the doctor said to Lisa, but some of my colleagues have heard it only secondhand. Would you mind describing again how you gave up cigarettes? Sure, Lisa said. It started in Cairo. The vacation had been something of a rash decision, she explained. A few months earlier, her husband had come home from work and announced that he was leaving her because he was in love with another woman. It took Lisa a while to process the betrayal and absorb the fact that she was actually getting a divorce. There was a period of mourning, then a period of obsessively spying on him, following his new girlfriend around town and calling her after midnight and hanging up. Then there was the evening Lisa showed up at the girlfriend's house, drunk, pounding on her door and screaming that she was going to burn the condo down. It wasn't a great time for me, Lisa said. I had always wanted to see the pyramids, and my credit cards weren't maxed out yet, so... On her first morning in Cairo, Lisa woke at dawn to the sound of the call to prayer from a nearby mosque. It was pitch black inside her hotel room. Half blind and jet-lagged, she reached for a cigarette. She was so disoriented that she didn't realize, until she smelled burning plastic, that she was trying to light a pen, not a Marlboro. She had spent the past four months crying, binge-eating, unable to sleep, and feeling ashamed, helpless, depressed, and angry, all at once. Lying in bed, she broke down. It was like this wave of sadness overwhelmed me, she said. I felt like everything I had ever wanted had crumbled. I couldn't even smoke right. And then I started thinking about my ex-husband and how hard it would be to find another job when I got back and how much I was going to hate it and how unhealthy I felt all the time. I got up and knocked over a water jug that shattered on the floor and I started crying even harder. I felt this desperation, like I had to change something. I had to find at least one thing I could control. She showered and left the hotel. As she rode through Cairo's rutted streets in a taxi and then onto the dirt roads leading to the Sphinx, the Pyramids of Giza, and the vast, endless desert around them, her self-pity for a brief moment gave way. She needed a goal in her life, she thought, something to work toward. So she decided, sitting in the taxi, that she would come back to Egypt and trek through the desert. It was a crazy idea, Lisa knew. She was out of shape, overweight, with no money in the bank. She didn't know the name of the desert she was looking at or if such a trip was possible. None of that mattered, though. She needed something to focus on. Lisa decided that she would give herself one year to prepare, 
and to survive such an expedition, she was certain she would have to make sacrifices. In particular, she would need to quit smoking. When Lisa finally made her way across the desert 11 months later, in an air-conditioned and motorized tour with a half-dozen other people, mind you, the caravan carried so much water, food, tents, maps, global positioning systems, and two-way radios that throwing in a carton of cigarettes wouldn't have made much of a difference. But in the taxi, Lisa didn't know that, and to the scientists at the laboratory, the details of her trek weren't relevant. Because for reasons they were just beginning to understand, that one small shift in Lisa's perception that day in Cairo, the conviction that she had to give up smoking to accomplish her goal, had touched off a series of changes that would ultimately radiate out to every part of her life. Over the next six months, she would replace smoking with jogging, and that, in turn, changed how she ate, worked, slept, saved money, scheduled her workdays, planned for the future, and so on. She would start running half marathons, and then a marathon, go back to school, buy a house, and get engaged. Eventually, she was recruited into the scientist's study, and when researchers began examining images of Lisa's brain, they saw something remarkable. One set of neurological patterns, her old habits, had been overridden by new patterns. They could still see the neural activity of her old behaviors, but those impulses were crowded out by new urges. As Lisa's habits changed, so had her brain. It wasn't the trip to Cairo that had caused the shift scientists believed, or the divorce or desert trek. It was that Lisa had focused on changing just one habit, smoking, at first. Everyone in the study had gone through a similar process. By focusing on one pattern, what is known as a keystone habit, Lisa had taught herself how to reprogram the other automatic routines in her life as well. It's not just individuals who are capable of such shifts. When companies focus on changing habits, whole organizations can transform. Firms such as Procter & Gamble, Starbucks, Alcoa, and Target have seized on this insight to influence how work gets done, how employees communicate, and, without customers realizing it, the way people shop. I want to show you one of your most recent scans, a researcher told Lisa near the end of her exam. He pulled up a picture on a computer screen that showed images from inside her head. When you see food, these areas, he pointed to a place near the center of her brain, which are associated with craving and hunger, are still active. Your brain still produces the urges that made you overeat. However, there's new activity in this area, he pointed to the region closest to her forehead, where we believe behavioral inhibition and self-discipline starts. That activity has become more pronounced each time you've come in. Lisa was the scientist's favorite participant because her brain scans were so compelling 
so useful in creating a map of where behavioral patterns, habits, reside within our minds. You're helping us understand how a decision becomes an automatic behavior, the doctor told her. Everyone in the room felt like they were on the brink of something important. And they were. When you woke up this morning, what did you do first? Did you hop in the shower, check your email, or grab a donut from the kitchen counter? Did you brush your teeth before or after you toweled off? Tie the left or right shoe first. What did you say to your kids on the way out the door? Which route did you drive to work? When you got to your desk, did you deal with email, chat with a colleague, or jump into writing a memo? Salad or hamburger for lunch? When you got home, did you put on your sneakers and go for a run, or pour yourself a drink and eat dinner in front of the TV? All our life, so far as it has definite form, is but a mass of habits, William James wrote in 1892. Most of the choices we make each day may feel like the products of well-considered decision-making, but they're not. They're habits. And though each habit means relatively little on its own, over time, the meals we order, what we say to our kids each night, whether we save or spend, how often we exercise, and the way we organize our thoughts and work routines have enormous impacts on our health, productivity, financial security, and happiness. One paper published by a Duke University researcher in 2006 found that more than 40% of the actions people performed each day weren't actual decisions, but habits. Okay, and that's where I want to pick things up at. You notice what he said? He said about 40% of the decisions we make, we don't even realize we're making them. Why is that? It's because they are habitual. We have done things so many times that we are now doing them on autopilot. This can be a very bad thing, or, now that you know the secret, it can be a ridiculously effective weapon in your arsenal of success. You keep marking off those red X's on your calendar, and you will habitualize things to the point where you don't even need to think about it. It will just come naturally. And when it comes naturally, you will then have created the new normal. Now let me tell you what I mean by that, and let me summarize everything we've talked about thus far by telling you a quick personal story about me. On a typical day, I would wake up a little tired, go into work, grab a cup of coffee. Hopefully I'd finally wake up after I had downed that coffee. Then I would try and do the best job I possibly could at work. On my lunch break, I'd try to be as efficient as possible, run a few personal errands to make things a little bit easier when I got home. Then I would come back into work and try and kill it as best as I could during the afternoon session at work. I would always try and leave on time so I could get home and spend time with the wife and kids, which usually meant I would spend time with the kids because they climb on me like a jungle gym. And when I get home, I love it, they love it, that's great, but it's exhausting. I would then put the kids down to bed by 8.30 p.m., that is, if all things went well, and then I would finally actually have some time to connect and talk to my wife in peace and quiet. Then after that, finally, really late at night, it's me time. And just so you know what's going on in my head during this time, this is what I would tell myself. Hey, you know, I worked a hard day, came home, was a good father, 
than I was a good husband, I deserve to unwind a little bit and relax. So I'd then watch a, a Netflix movie or documentary or whatever. Uh, I had a particularly keen addiction to those ESPN 30 for 30 sports documentaries. And before you know it, I had, quote, relaxed until one in the morning. I mean, no wonder I would wake up totally exhausted. And why is that? Because one time in my head, I thought I deserved to unwind and relax by watching TV. And the thing is, I didn't even really give that a whole lot of thought. I just proceeded to do it so much that it was habitualized. And I did it night after night without giving it a second thought. So you know what Eric Thomas said about sleep? He said, Most of you don't want success as much as you want to sleep. Well, I was one step worse than that without even realizing it. I like Netflix more than I like sleep. How sad is that? I mean, I do like sleep. And this is just more emphasis on why morning routines dominate. Think about this. When is the last time you got up at 4 a.m. to binge watch Netflix, House of Cards, or Breaking Bad, or, or Game of Thrones, or whatever? I mean, no one gets up early to do these things. But most everyone has no problem staying up really late to watch these shows. I know because I used to do that. So I'm guessing if you are staying up really, really, really late to watch TV, just be aware that you are making a decision, although most likely unknowingly, but nonetheless you are making a decision to do something that contributes very little towards your success. But if you are getting up early, there are definite reasons to get up early, and that's to do your personal development, chase your dreams, and attack success. After I heard about the Miracle Morning, I finally realized that I like sleep more than I like TV because more sleep means more energy, which means better results. Do you see how the dominoes start to stack up in your favor? Around this same time, my oldest brother discovered a passion for running. He basically challenged me to start running. He bugged me for a few weeks, then he finally just recommended that I listen to Ben Greenfield podcast. And once I did that, the game was on. I was hooked. See, Ben Greenfield is one of the most influential people in the fitness world, and I'm sure at some point we'll play some of his clips. But from just listening from his show, just his knowledge and his take on fitness, it lit a fire under me, so I gave it a try. So I started running, and then as it happened, a few months later after that, my brother and I were on a family vacation together, and we decided to run a 5K together, which we did. After we finished that 5K, he just flat out challenged me to run a marathon. The marathon was about 10 months away, so I said yes. And that's when I got a plan together. I chose the Jeff Galloway run-walk method. Uh, I chose that because it was a relatively simple method. You run three days per week. And all I did is I made a chart. And I started getting up early in the morning. And each time I completed a run, I put a big red check mark on a calendar that hung from my bathroom door. So think about all the concepts that are in play here that we have already talked about. We talked about you are the average of the people that you hang out with. So who am I hanging out with? Well, in this particular area, my brother was my success buddy that is encouraging me and giving me pointers when it comes to running. And I'm constantly feeding my mind with fitness expertise from the Ben Greenfield podcast. And with the Miracle Morning, I kept marking those big red X's on my calendar and doing that consistently, slight edge style, over a period of 10 months. And I was able to complete the Flying Pig Marathon in Cincinnati, Ohio. So do you notice the formula in that example? 
the blocks are starting to stack up nicely and you can apply these same steps to any goal that you have. Then an interesting thing happened to me. One day I was totally exhausted and I slept in a little bit longer. And my wife happened to get up before me and she finally looked at me and serious as a heart attack, she said, are you feeling okay? You seem a little off today. I said, no, what do you mean? I, I feel fine. She said, you slept in so long, I thought you were sick or something. I mean, shouldn't you get up at like 4 a.m. and gone running or something like that? And that's when I realized it. Doing the miracle morning and getting up early and exercise is now not only a part of my identity and who I am, other people see me that way as well. Now, keep in mind that my wife and I had been married for 10 years at this point. During the first nine years of our marriage, if she sees me sleep in, trust me, she's not asking if I feel okay, just because that's normal for me. Sleeping in was expected. Now, when I first started getting up early, I would sometimes accidentally make too much noise and wake her up, or I would be downstairs doing some morning yoga or having some quiet time, and she would come downstairs asking if I was okay. Then finally, I tell her I'm going to try and get up early every morning, and she asked how early, and I said, well, it depends, but on the perfect day, I'd like to get up at 4.30 a.m., and that's when she called me crazy. But then sometime during the 10th year of our marriage, I had put so many red X's on that calendar that at some point, she saw me as an early riser in the morning and as a runner. I had created the new normal. This is just who I am and what I do. Now, why do I tell you this story? Because I want you to create the new normal for you. I want you to see that the bad decisions you are unconsciously making, I want you to replace those bad choices with smart choices that you make so often that it becomes automatic and just a part of who you are, just part of your identity. And just realize that anytime you start something new, guess what? It's new. You may even get some unintentional pushback from family and friends. If you are the guy that when you go out to eat with your friends pigs out and always gets double cheeseburgers and french fries and soda and all of a sudden you're putting all those red X's on your calendar and you order a salad, your friends will make some sort of comment. Well, 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 look at you. Trying to get healthy, are we? Why are you eating salad and what have you done with my real friend? Is this the real you or just an imposter? But I tell you what, if for the next 90 times you go out and you order a salad... I guarantee no one's going to make those comments anymore. They will actually expect you to eat a salad. You may even be an inspiration to them. You have just created the new normal. So I want to wrap this episode up with one final clip. This is a clip from The Willpower Instinct by Kelly McGonigal. And this, folks, is worth the price of admission. This is probably the biggest stumbling block from keeping the red X streak alive. It's a lie we tell ourselves all the time. It's actually a lie dressed as our imaginary friend. So I want to introduce you to this imaginary friend right now. Meet your future self. I'd like to introduce you to two people I think you'll really get along with. The first is you. You is prone to procrastination, has trouble controlling impulses, and doesn't really like to exercise finish up paperwork, or do the laundry. The second is um, also named you. For convenience, let's call this person U2.0. U2.0 has no trouble with procrastination because U2.0 has boundless energy for all tasks, no matter how boring or difficult. U2.0 also has amazing self-control 
and is able to face down potato chips, the home shopping network, and inappropriate sexual advances, with nary a craving nor a tremble. Who are you and you 2.0? You is the person listening to this chapter, perhaps feeling a little tired and cranky from lack of sleep and overwhelmed by the ten other things you need to do today. You 2.0 is future you. No, not the person you'll magically become when you finish the last page of this audiobook. Future you is the person you imagine when you wonder whether you should clean the closet today or leave it to your future self. Future you is the person who will be much more enthusiastic about exercising than you are right now. Future you is the person who will order the healthiest item on the fast food menu so that present you can enjoy the burger so artery-clogging you must sign a legal waiver to order it. Future you always has more time, more energy, and more willpower than present you. At least, that's the story we tell ourselves when we think about our future selves. Future you is free from anxiety and has a higher pain tolerance than present you, making future you the perfect person to get that colonoscopy. Future you is better organized and more motivated than present you, making it only logical to let future you handle the hard stuff. It is one of the most puzzling but predictable mental errors humans make. We think about our future selves like different people. We often idealize them, expecting our future selves to do what our present selves cannot manage. Sometimes we mistreat them, burdening them with the consequences of our present selves' decisions. Sometimes we simply misunderstand them, failing to realize that they will have the same thoughts and feelings as our present selves. However we think of our future selves, rarely do we see them as fully us. Princeton University psychologist Emily Pronin has shown that this failure of imagination leads us to treat our future selves like strangers. In her experiments, students are asked to make a series of self-control choices. Some are choosing what they are willing to do today, while others are choosing for themselves in the future. Still others get to decide what another student, the next person to show up for the study, will have to do. And though you might think we would naturally form an alliance between our present selves and future selves, it turns out that we are more likely to save our present selves from anything too stressful, but burden our future selves like we would a stranger. In one experiment, students were asked to drink a revolting liquid made from ketchup and soy sauce. The students got to choose how much of the drink they were willing to consume in the name of science. The more they drank, the more helpful it would be to the researchers a perfect I-will power challenge. Some students were told that the drinking part of the study would take place in a matter of minutes. Other students were told that the drinking part of the study would be scheduled for next semester. Their present selves were off the hook, and their future selves would be the ones choking down the concoction. Still other students were asked to choose how much of the ketchup concoction the next participant in the study would be required to drink. What would you do? What would future you do? What would you expect of a stranger? If you are like most people, your future self has more of an appetite for science and soy sauce than present you. The students assigned their future selves and the next participant more than twice as much of the disgusting liquid, almost half a cup, as they were willing to drink in the present, two tablespoons. Students showed the same bias when asked to donate time for a good cause. They signed up their future selves for 85 minutes of tutoring fellow students in the next semester. They were even more generous with other students' time 
signing them up for 120 minutes of tutoring. But when asked to commit for the present semester, their present selves had only 27 minutes to spare. In a third study, students were given the choice between a small amount of money now or a larger delayed payment. When choosing for their present selves, they took the immediate reward, but they expected their future selves and other students to delay gratification. Thinking so highly of our future selves would be fine if we could really count on our future selves to behave so nobly. But more typically, when we get to the future, our ideal future is nowhere to be found, and our same old self is left making the decisions. Even as we are in the middle of a self-control conflict, we foolishly expect that our future selves will be unconflicted. The future self keeps being pushed into the future, like a deus ex machina that will emerge to save us from our present selves in the very last act. We put off what we need to do because we are waiting for someone else to show up who will find the change effortless. Under the Microscope Are you waiting for future you? Is there an important change or task you are putting off, hoping that a future you with more willpower will show up? Do you optimistically overcommit yourself to responsibilities, only to find yourself overwhelmed by impossible demands? Do you talk yourself out of something today, telling yourself that you'll feel more like it tomorrow? A dental phobic stops waiting for a future dentist-loving self to show up. It had been almost ten years since Paul, aged forty-five, had been to the dentist. His gums were sensitive, and he had recurrent tooth pain. His wife kept telling him to go to the dentist, and he told her he would get to it when things at work got less busy. In reality, he was afraid of what he would find out about the state of his teeth and the procedures he'd need to have done. When he thought about the future self-problem, Paul realized that he had been telling himself that he was going to get over his fear, and that's when he would make the appointment. But when he looked at his actual behavior, he saw that he had been telling himself that for almost a decade. In that time, his teeth and gums had surely deteriorated from his refusal to go to the dentist. By waiting for his future fearless self, he was guaranteeing he'd have something to really be afraid of. Once Paul admitted that there was no version of him that was ever going to want to go to the dentist, he decided to find a way to get his fearful self there. Paul got a recommendation from a co-worker for a dentist who specialized in fearful patients and even provided sedatives for the examination and treatment. Before, Paul would have felt too embarrassed to go to this dentist, but he knew it was the only way to get his real, present self to take care of his future self's health. Why the future feels different Why do we treat our future selves like different people? Part of the problem lies in our inability to access our future selves' thoughts and feelings. When we think of our future selves, our future needs and emotions don't feel as real and pressing as our present desires. The thoughts and feelings that shape our present self's decisions aren't triggered until we feel the immediacy of an opportunity. Students making the choice about how much ketchup and soy sauce to drink didn't feel their stomachs lurch when the decision was for next semester. When donating the time of their future selves, the students weren't bombarded with thoughts of this weekend's big game or stress about next week's midterm. Without the internal cues of disgust and anxiety, we guess wrong about what we will be willing to do in the future. 
Brain imaging studies show that we even use different regions of the brain to think about our present selves and our future selves. When people imagine enjoying a future experience, the brain areas associated with thinking about oneself are surprisingly unengaged. It's as if we are picturing someone else enjoying the sunset or savoring the meal. The same is true when people are asked to consider whether certain traits describe their present selves or their future selves. When reflecting on the future self, the brain's activation is identical to when it is considering the traits of another person. It is as if we are observing a person from the outside to decide what is true about them, rather than looking within to decide what is true of ourselves. The brain's habit of treating the future self like another person has major consequences for self-control. Studies show that the less active your brain's self-reflection system is when you contemplate your future self, the more likely you are to say, screw you to future you, and yes to immediate gratification. A fundraiser uses future self-optimism for good. Anna Bremen, an economist at the University of Arizona, wondered whether there was a way for nonprofit organizations to take advantage of people's tendency to think of their future selves as more magnanimous than their present selves. Could fundraisers exploit the future self-bias by asking people to pledge their future selves money instead of giving money now? She worked with Diakonia, a Swedish charity that supports local sustainable projects in developing countries, to compare two different fundraising strategies. In Give More Now, current donors were asked to increase their automatic monthly donations, starting with the very next payment. In Give More Tomorrow, donors were also asked to increase their monthly donation, but it wouldn't kick in until two months later. Donors who received the Give More Tomorrow request increased their donations 32% more than the donors who were asked to give more today. When it comes to our own self-control, we need to be careful about what we expect from our future selves. But when it comes to getting other people to commit their money, time, or effort, you can take advantage of the future self-bias by asking them to commit far in advance. When your future self is a stranger... We all care more about our own well-being than that of a stranger. That's human nature. It's only logical, then, that we would put our present self's wants above our future self's welfare. Why invest in a stranger's future, especially at the expense of your own present comfort? Hal Erzner Hirschfield, a psychologist at New York University, believes that this self-interest is behind one of the biggest challenges facing our aging society. People are living longer but retiring at the same age, and most have not financially prepared themselves for the extra years. It is estimated that two-thirds of baby boomers have not saved enough money to maintain their standard of living in retirement. In fact, a 2010 survey found that 34% of Americans had absolutely zero retirement savings, including 53% of those under the age of 33 and 22% of those 65 or older. Erzner Hirschfeld, a young guy himself, who at the time did not have much saved, thought that maybe people were not saving for their future selves because it felt like putting money away for a stranger. To find out, he created a measure of future self-continuity, the degree to which you see your future self as essentially the same person as your current self. Not everyone views the future self as a total stranger. Some of us feel quite close and connected to our future selves. 
Ersner Hirschfeld has found that people with high future self-continuity, that is, people who felt close to their future selves or saw their future selves as very similar to their present selves, save more money and rack up less credit card debt, building a significantly better financial future for their future selves to enjoy. If feeling estranged from your future self leads to short-sighted financial decisions, can getting to know your future self lead to greater savings? Ersner Hirschfeld decided to test this possibility by introducing college students to their retirement age selves. Working with professional computer animators using age progression software, he created three-dimensional avatars of participants as they would look at retirement age. Ersner Hirschfeld's aim was to help his young participants feel like the age progression really was them, not a relative. The most common response from students was, that looks just like Uncle Joe or Aunt Sally, and not a creature from a horror movie. To get to know their future selves, the students interacted with their age-advanced avatars in an immersive virtual reality setup. The participants sat in front of a mirror, but they saw reflected their future selves. If the participant moved her head, her future self moved her head. If she turned sideways, her future self turned sideways. While participants watched their future selves in the mirror, an experimenter asked each participant questions such as, What is your name? Where are you from? And what is your passion in life? As the participant answered, it appeared as though the future self was speaking. After spending time with their future selves, participants left the virtual reality lab and began a hypothetical budgeting task. They were given $1,000 and asked to divvy it up among present expenses, a fund splurge, a checking account, and a retirement account. Students who had interacted with their future selves put more than twice as much money into their retirement accounts as students who had spent time looking at their young selves in a real mirror. Getting to know their future selves made the students more willing to invest in them and, by extension, themselves. Although the technology is not yet widely available, one can imagine the day when every human resources office has new employees interact with their future selves before enrolling in the company's retirement plan. In the meantime, there are other ways to get to know your future self. Listen to the willpower experiment, Meet Your Future Self, coming up in a minute. Strengthening your future self-continuity can do more than fatten your savings. It can help you with any willpower challenge. High future self-continuity seems to propel people to the best version of themselves now. For example, Ersner Hirschfeld noticed that people high in future self-continuity were more likely to show up for the study on time, and people low in future self-continuity were more likely to blow the study off and have to reschedule. Struck by this accidental finding, he began to explore how future self-continuity affects ethical decision-making. His most recent work shows that people with low future self-continuity behave less ethically in business role-play scenarios. They are more likely to pocket money found in the office and more comfortable leaking information that could ruin another person's career. They also lie more in a game that rewards deception with money. It is as if feeling disconnected from our future selves gives us permission to ignore the consequences of our actions. In contrast, feeling connected to our future selves protects us from our worst impulses. So there it is, folks. Things are not going to be easier on your future self. You'll be just as tired or busy or stressed tomorrow as you are today, 
unless you start to take control of your situation. Start a streak. I personally think the Miracle Morning streak is the best streak to start and track because besides lowering your stress level, it leads to so many other streaks, like in particular, fitness streaks, and with the quiet time and self-reflection of the Miracle Morning, you finally start to address the trickiest of all the five Fs, that being faith or ultimate purpose in life. All right, so let's go over your homework. I want you to read, and by read, I mean listen to the audiobook, The Power of Habit by Charles Duhigg. I also want you to get a big giant wall calendar that you can hang somewhere prominently in your house, maybe the back of your master bathroom door, and I want you to get a big red obnoxious marker to start your streak. I'm actually going to put a couple ideas on the show notes. You can get a big red marker from Amazon or like these huge, huge number two pencils. Uh, And the reason behind that is, you know, when you go after your goals, you know, you, you have things like purpose and achievement and fulfillment. And all these things are basically immaterial concepts. So you want to sort of manifest those things in the physical world as best you can to give yourself constant reminders of that. And I'm telling you, there's something about having a big, stupid marker sitting on your bathroom sink that you can't forget about if you walk by and you see a marker that's like 15 inches long you're going to remember why it's there and you'll remember and you'll want to start that streak you want to start that streak toward greatness and the final piece of homework is to create and continue to refine your morning routine Uh, specifically figure out ways to knock that first small domino over to create your success change. The books mentioned in this show were The One Thing by Gary Keller, of course, The Power of Habit by Charles Duhigg, and finally, The Will Power Instinct by Kelly McGonigal. Okay, that's it. The next show, we're going to discuss ways to supercharge your motivation to keep that streak alive and to continue to create the new normal. Take care, folks. Thanks for listening. We hope you found a few nuggets of wisdom that you can apply to your life. Until next time, take action. Keep hacking and stacking your way to success.